Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, moving right along. Andrew, do you want to tell us who's next? Certainly. Brooks Robinson, born in 1937, died on September 27th. Perhaps the greatest defensive player in baseball history, Robinson won 16 straight gold gloves at third base for the Baltimore Orioles and was named to 18 all-star teams. He is perhaps best remembered for his dazzling performance in the 1970 World Series, where he batted 429, hit two home runs, and was named series MVP. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1983. Having lived in Baltimore for the last year, I mean, not in Baltimore, but having lived sort of in between the D.C. and Baltimore areas for the last couple of years. And whether it's just, you know, the media or some of the Sabre stuff that I'm involved with going to Oriole games, he he really is the most beloved player in Orioles history. Um they like Ripken. They like Palmer. Those are the two other guys that spent their whole career with the team. And Eddie Murray has a little bit sort of a cult following. You can get an Eddie Murphy branded beer at Camden Yards. But I've kind of felt like as far as just pure love from Orioles fans, Brooks Robinson kind of takes it uh, going away. Well, I think, A, you know, certainly you can debate the merits just strictly on the field of him and Ripken, you know, and, and there's, you know, Ripken was obviously on that 83 team that won a world series, but Robinson is associated with the greatest era of the Orioles. And, you know, that whatever you want to call it, six, eight year run being one of the best sort of eras in, uh, in baseball history. If it wasn't for a couple of slip ups in the world series, it would be remembered even more fondly. You, you said it yourself in this while I said it, but you wrote it in <laughs> him possibly being the greatest defensive player in baseball history. I mean, he's, uh, you hear about Willie Mays and certainly a lot of baseball, especially pre, you know, in the Mays era, especially Mays' early era, there's not enough video of plays on a, you know, game by game basis to make a lot of these judgments, but it's a pretty short list of guys who are even in the discussion. And he's not only in the discussion, but he might be, the greatest defensive player of all time. And if he's not, he's, you know, two or something like that. The the only analog I could think of, first of all, there's only one player in history who has more gold gloves than Brooks Robinson. That's Greg Maddox. And to me, that sort of maybe deserves a little bit of an asterisk because gold glove. And I think we've touched on this in other areas before gold glove for a pitcher is sort of a, a different type of thing because they don't play every day. They sort of, the the range that they're expected to cover is so much smaller than it is for any other position on the field. So really you could say that Robinson for all intents and purposes has the most gold gloves in, in major league history. The only other analog that I can really think of was, um, was Ozzie Smith. 
But I think Robinson uh, definitely had more big moments than Smith. Um, and probably, probably a better offensive player than Ozzie Smith. Yeah, I think that's what, you know, I, I think that's pretty well established as being the case that he was a better uh, better offensive player than Smith. You know, just to go through some of the voting here, 60, he was third in MVP. And I'll, I'll only give you the top 10 finishes. There's years he's in the, the teens or, or 20s in terms of being voted. He is the third in MVP in 1960. He's ninth in 62. He wins it in 64, third in 65, second in 66. Few years off where he's in the he's only in the the 17 to 23 range. Then in 70, he's seventh, 71, he's fourth. And then I'll break my rule a little bit, but in 1974, at 37 years old, he was 12th. So a career that spans what 23 seasons with the Orioles, all with the same team, and from say 1960 to 1974, 1975, he's finishing, you know, he's recording significant votes in the, in the MVP race, every one of those years. Not a great offensive player, but not a terrible one either. He, you know, he's got, what is this now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It looks like 11 seasons in double digit home runs. High for his career is 28. He's got seasons of 23, 23, 22, 23 again, 20. He wasn't a guy who had any, you know, a couple of seasons. His MVP year in 64, which was the the baby birds era. That was when the the first year that the Orioles were actually really any good. They were managed by Hank Bauer, the former Yankee outfielder from the 50s. They finished 97 and 65, which was third in the American League. One of the the funniest things about baseball in the pre wild card era is you have these teams that win well over 90 games, you know, 97, 98 <laughs> games and still don't make it to the postseason in 64, which is the last year that vaunted Yankee dynasty. The Yankees win 99, the White Sox win 64 and Baltimore wins 97. Uh, you know, so basically the bottom three, top three slots are all separated by just one game. And that's Robinson's probably his best year as a pro. He's 27. He hits uh 317 with 118 RBIs and 28 home runs. The I think all three of those are career highs. And that's kind of the beginning of the the sort of rumblings of the Oriole dynasty that would really last in a lot of ways for the better part of 20 years, you know, through the whole 70s, you know, even into the the Ripken years, once Brooks Robinson retires, Earl Weaver doesn't come to manage a team to the late 60s. Bowers, the manager of the 66 team. But Brooks is the first one to get there. He's there before Palmer. He's there before Frank Robinson. I think he's there before Boog Powell. I can double check on that. So him coming to the Orioles, to a team that had been not good uh, for the first 10 or so years that they had were in Baltimore after moving for Saint, from St. Louis, that, that meant a lot to the team and to a city that hadn't had baseball in quite some time. By the way, when he was uh, elected to the Hall of Fame in 83, he was just the 16th player to have been uh, a first ballot Hall of Famer. And that doesn't include the guys who got in literally in the first year of mm-hmm. eligibility. Um, I just looked up some of the, the areas and I know some of these advanced are imperfect for this stuff, but 
just overall war for position players. He's second all time behind Ripken for the Orioles slash Browns franchise offensive war. And some of this is a longevity thing, but he is behind only Ripken, Eddie Murray and George Sisler uh, for offensive war defensive. He's second, which again, that shows you kind of an imperfect system. He's behind Mark Bellinger. Mm-hmm. Um, so offensively, he was still, you know, he was more than adequate offensively. It was just that he was, you know, that was going to look bad compared to or look lacking in comparison to being the greatest defensive player or possibly the second greatest defensive player of all time. He's not a Hall of Famer based just on his offensive statistics. The defense is is necessary. He has that. Um, he actually has some really, really good postseasons. Uh, the Orioles make it to the World Series three years in a row. They make it in 69, where they lose to the Miracle Mets, 70, where they beat Cincinnati, and then 71, they lose in seven to the Pirates. But in the ALCS against Minnesota in 69, he hits 500 in uh, in three games has a terrible uh world series against the mets hits only 53 0.053 but then in 1970 alcs again against minnesota he hits 583 with um a couple of rbis uh slugging 750 and then in the 70 world series which is well known as the great performance of book brooks robinson's career he uh, hits 429 with two homers, six RBIs, nine hits in 21 plate appearances. And then in 71, he's not bad either. He hits 70, uh, 364 in the ALCS and then 318 in the uh, in the loss to Pittsburgh uh, in the World Series. And in addition, in that 70 World Series, he makes some of the greatest defensive plays you've ever seen, you know, robbing guys. The, the most famous is a play he makes against Lee May, where he sort of uh, sort of, you know, goes into foul territory and throws and, you know, gets Lee May out by a step at first base. Something interesting that I read, he was actually somebody who was ambidextrous. He could do a lot of things with his left hand and as well as his right and a lot of people have speculated that maybe the reason why he was so good with the glove was that he was using that hand sort of the way the rest of us might use our, you know, our dominant hand, the hand you write with and eat with and all those types of things. So that might have helped the fact that he had more usage of his left hand, more natural usage of it than a lot of other fielders. I'm looking at a, uh, a Sabre thing where they kind of have the all-time fielding teams by decade, or I guess these were voted on in the individual decades, but they have one of the uh, voting for all-time fielding team, 1970 to 1972. And this is not a list that's filled. Certainly first team, the guys who won in each category is not filled with a lot of what would have passed for modern in 1972 players. For example, the rest of the infield is George Sisler, Eddie Collins, Honus Wagner. Mm-hmm. The outfield is Tris Spurrier, Joe DiMaggio, Willie Mays, who I guess was still active then, but was at the end of his career. Mickey Cochran, Bobby Shantz, and Brooks Robinson is the third baseman who's still not only active, but you know maybe just past the peak of his career, but is still uh, is still you know very, very much not a complete player you know his story's not over yet for him so he was that good in it where he was appreciated even in his time by guys who you know the same group of people that voted for 
Trish Speaker and Eddie Collins and George Sisler. And, you know, there's not a lot of sort of all-time great third baseman. If you think about it, you got, you know, Eddie Matthews, you got Wade Boggs. Everybody talks about Pie Trainer, but he's not really an all-time great. And even recently, a lot of the guys who have been third basemen who are in the Hall of Fame are not, you know, Ripken moved there halfway through his career. I'm trying to think who else has sort of gotten in the Hall of Fame recently as a third baseman. Adrian Beltre will, but he played a lot of DH later in his career. Brett went back and forth between third base and first base. You just don't think about a lot of guys who were, you know, overwhelmingly played third base. Mike Schmidt. I guess Schmidt's the other one I meant to mention. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the list of guys who are, you know, hall of fame, third baseman and Wade Boggs, you know, they, you go back pretty far with some of these guys, Wade Boggs, George Brett, Chipper Jones, although Chipper Jones bounced back and forth, Mm -hmm. Scott Rowland, who just got in the hall of fame, but you know, is nobody's definition of an all time great. So you're right. That's it's not, you know, you expect with how long baseball's been going on and how few positions there are that there would be well there has to be like several dozen all-timers at every position and it's not always the case definitely but he is one and again somebody kind of kind of stayed in the baltimore area for most of the rest of his life even after he retired and so was beloved in the orioles in the orioles world and sort of the orioles organization and among uh among the fans in baltimore all right, uh, moving right along. Uh, Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about our next uh, honoree? Sure. Russ Francis, born in 1953, passed away on October 1st. Francis played tight end for the Patriots and 49ers, making two all-pro teams and winning Super Bowl 19 with San Francisco in 1984. Off the field, he participated in the NFL WWF Battle Royal at WrestleMania II in Chicago. And we are glad to have with us another one of our Sports History Network colleagues, uh, Bob Swick, who is both the both the host of the Gridiron Greats podcast on the Sports History Network and also the owner and publisher of the Gridiron Greats magazine. Uh, Bob, how are you doing tonight? Thanks for joining us. Very good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, gl- glad to be able to do it. So um, why don't we stop, start off a little bit with you? Why? Tell us a little bit about Russ Francis and why he was somebody that you wanted to come on and talk about. Well, Russ Francis was a very unique player uh, at a unique time in football. Uh, He was the guy who would play uh, 60 minutes and give everything he could on on the gridiron. And then he had an outside life off the field, which was very, very adventurous, to say the least. He was a licensed pilot. Uh, He did skydiving. Uh, he dabbled in wrestling. He was a uh, television announcer. He did a lot of different things in his life, and, and he tried to live life to its fullest. And the the one thing I, I have to point out about Francis, he only played one year of football at Oregon um, in the four years that he attended there. So he he's pretty unique in the way that in 14 games, he ended up being such a high draft pick. And he was uh, such a great player on the field, pro bowler in 1976, 77, and 78. And again, I uh, was originally from Connecticut, 
So I saw a lot of Patriots football. And uh, a few times that I went up there to watch uh, the Patriots play, I did see him play in person. And uh, he was a tough guy on the field. He was, he was a very, very uh, tough player, great tight end for the Patriots, uh, found a great second career on the field with the 49ers, uh, picking up a Super Bowl victory in 84 against the Dolphins. Uh, so he, re he really did a lot on the field, and he did a lot off the field. And it was very, very interesting of a uh, player slash character uh, in football. And I think it's interesting because I sort of originally, you know, when I saw that he had passed away and uh, decided to include him on the list uh, to be talked about this year, I had definitely thought about him more as a 49er because that was the more recent. That was the, you know, the better team, the, the team that was in the playoffs every year. And that was obviously where he won his championship. But he his best years his you know, his, his Pro Bowl years were with the Patriots, not the 49ers. Exactly. And I think the 49ers had so much talent at that time that he just blended in and he had his own niche there as far as uh, what he did with Montana playing and with, with the game, uh, the games that uh, he played with the 49ers. And I, I, it's interesting you said that, Dan, because I've heard a couple of people say the same thing. They associate him more with the 49ers than they do with the Patriots. I associate him more with the Patriots than with the 49ers. He ended up settling at the end of his life in Madison, Connecticut, and he was known uh, in the area to drop into several restaurants over the years. My nephew was, ended up getting uh, becoming friends with him at one of the restaurants he attended, and uh, he was a very normal guy. He just came in, uh, and he, he uh, was very, very down-to-earth. You never thought the guy was a former professional football player. He just talked about a lot of different things. He was very interested in life. He was very interested in what you were doing. He was a great guy. Too bad. Uh, it was just so sad what happened to him. It seems like his best years were with New England at the beginning of his career, especially. That was when he made his uh, his all-pro teams were in 76 and 78, Pro Bowl 77 through 79. Um you know, it, it. I think it's it's interesting too because he was on the 49ers for about as long as you could be in that run, and only play in one Super Bowl because he came in the year after '81 when they won, and he left in '87 before they started to win again at the end of the decade. So, I think in general people just kind of go, "Oh, he played in a Super Bowl with the 49ers. He's most known as a 49er." But when you count his second stint with the Patriots, you know, '87 and '88 primarily, he actually played longer and at a higher level with the Patriots than he did with the 49ers. Exactly. And in, in 87, 88, uh, I believe he was, uh, he joined the Patriots like right before the season ended in 87, mm. uh, 88, he was out with an injury and then he just, that was it. He called it. And uh, he mm. had of other things that he was doing with his life. So it really didn't bother him getting off the field. Whereas some players, as we well know, uh, they never know when to hang it up because uh, it's quite an elixir to go out and listen to 70,000 people cheer you every uh, every game. So you don't want to end that. You don't want to give that up. But Francis knew he had a lot of different things going on in his life and other things that he was going to do with his life. So football wasn't, you know, his total life and and his and that's all he that's all he did in his life. And And I think that really has to come out. Uh, knowing Russ, Russ Francis uh, in his piloting, uh, buying this uh, air service in Lake Placid at the end of his career, I mean, at the end of his lifetime, 
And uh, just, he was an amazing guy. He's almost like a Renaissance man uh, doing all sorts of different things at all different times of his life, coming out of Hawaii at the same time. Uh, father was a professional wrestler. Uh, he did that WrestleMania with the uh, mm-hmm. football players and the uh, known wrestlers at the time, meeting Andre the Giant, in which uh, he felt a lot of pain when Andre uh, put him <laughs> down there on the mat. I remember watching that many, many years ago. So uh, it, it, he, to try to remember him is to remember him that he had many different aspects of his life not just the football field, but with a lot of different other things. And I think that's what made him such a great, uh, for lack of a better way of saying, a legend in the Patriots history and also a very smaller legend with the 49ers uh, at the end of his career. There was a biography. Go ahead, Andrew. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that that um, that WrestleMania Battle Royal, there was about six guys in it. Refrigerator Perry was the big name because that was right after the 86 Bears. And most of them were doing it sort of as a, as a PR thing. Russ Francis had actually wrestled a number of times in a, in a company called the AWA. And if you kind of look at the dates, he was obviously early in his career when he was with the Patriots. He was doing it in the off seasons, in the spring and the summer, and then leaving every year in time for uh, for training camp with the Patriots to start again. But go ahead, Dan. Sorry to cut you off. I was going to say there's a there's a biography uh, by David Harris of of Bill Walsh called The Genius, and it's a, a biography of Bill Walsh that came out about 10, 15 years ago. And he he talks about the relationship, the sometimes strained relationship between Walsh and Russ Francis. And he says that um, Russ really pushed Bill Walsh's buttons better than anyone else. He would stand uh, and look at airplanes flying over during practice. Uh, And uh, then they also tell a story of one time that um, they're arguing in Bill Walsh's office and Russ Francis uh, takes offense to something that Bill Walsh says. Bill Walsh says something along the lines of your mother should have had better control of you when you were growing up. And that hit Francis the wrong way. So he picks up Bill, uh, Bill Walsh's desk. Uh, intending just to flip the papers off of it, but the desk is too heavy. Uh, Francis loses control of it. The desk flips onto its side, uh, n- pins Bill Walsh to the floor, <laughs> knocking him out of his chair. And uh, Walsh yells at Francis, but Francis just walks out, stop it, stops at uh, Bill Walsh's secretary's desk and says, your boss is in your office and needs your help. So <laughs> a guy with a... Uh, an independent streak, I guess we could say, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a, a live wire on a lot of different things, and you know, and he, he marched to the beat of a different drummer, that's for sure. And uh, there's there was another time um, we're we're doing a feature with him on our upcoming issue of Gridiron Greats magazine. that will be out in a few weeks, and uh, Walsh was trying to talk Francis out of trying to set a. Uh, I think it was a air record of flying at 300 miles an hour, beating some sort of uh, speed record. And Walsh said uh, to Francis, and this is what theoretically got Francis to not do the uh, flight, at 300 miles, Russ, nothing remains. Think about it. And uh, (laughs) I, I see irony in that many years later. As Francis dies, and the thing that he he loved probably the most was that was in a plane flying somewhere. So uh, he 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 fought. He uh, missed death early in his career, and uh, it did take him um, in a, at his last stand in life. So, uh, but again, very very uh, 
Very, very interesting man. So many different aspects of his life. So unique, in my opinion. And uh, he will definitely be missed. And that Patriot team that he was on sort of gets lost to history. They they were up 21-10 to the... The Oakland Raiders in the 1976 playoffs, and I believe that 76 would have been the year that uh, that would have been the year that the Raiders end up going all the way and winning the championship. So they came very close to beating uh, uh, the eventual world champion uh, Oakland Raiders in the in the playoffs in the 1976. And in fact, it's a questionable call, a pass interference call that the Patriots don't get in the second half with Russ Francis as the interfered with receiver in this playoff game that that cost them the 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 game uh so to speak so yeah a unique guy um you know part of part of some some really good teams and and a unique character uh like you said bob both both on and off the field uh so uh before we let you go bob uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh what you work on for the sports history network uh Gridiron Greats podcast, and then also uh, the the more longer standing uh, Gridiron Greats magazine. Well, I've been publishing Gridiron Greats magazine since 2009. Uh, we're coming out with our 83rd issue in a few weeks, like I said before. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in North America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. And we try to cover all aspects of football uh, memorabilia, cards, and the history of the game. We're a quarterly publication. Our website is gridirongreatsmagazine.com. You can find out about back issues that are available for sale and subscribers. We do a podcast on the Sports History Network. We usually try to run twice a month. We feature a collector and their collection. And uh, my co-host Joe Squires and I talk about parts of our collection. We, it's almost like a show and tell type of situation. Uh, in our podcast, but we've had some amazing guests with some amazing uh, collections that they've featured uh, over the years. And we actually have been doing the podcast for many years now, uh, only recently moving to the Sports History Network. And we're really glad to have you on it. So, uh, Bob, uh, thank you very much uh, for being part of the network. And particularly from Andrew and me, thank you very much for uh, coming on and talking about Russ Francis. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Take care. All right, why don't we move on here and talk uh, about another beloved baseball star, and that is Tim Wakefield, who was born in 1966 and died on October 1st. A knuckleball specialist, Wakefield pitched 19 seasons in the major leagues, all but two with the Boston Red Sox. He won 200 games in the major leagues, 186 with Boston, and his third all-time in wins in Red Sox history behind only Roger Clemens and Cy Young. He won two World Series with the team in 2004 and 2007. We are honored to have uh, yet another guest joining us here tonight on our uh, Hello World Sports in Memoriam special. And that is my lovely wife, Allison. And Allison, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, so Tim Wakefield, sort of... Uh, not a great player, a, lot, a mainstay of the Red Sox for the better part of two decades. Well, yeah, I, you know, he is one of those guys that was able to stick around. I think he retired when he was 45. His, you know, he was not throwing out his arm, pitching 90 something miles an hour. It was those 65 mile an hour knuckleballs. Um, but he was somebody who not only 
was on the mound for some very important Red Sox games and some very sad Red Sox games, um, but also was a mainstay in the community and even after playing was still a part of the organization, lived in the suburbs of Boston and really, you know, was a was a Boston Red Sox through and through. One of the things that I hadn't realized is, and Andrew, I don't know if you saw this, he started his career with Pittsburgh, which I, th- which I think he sort of vague, I sort of vaguely knew that, but he was started two games or maybe he didn't start two games, but he, he won two games in the 1992 NLCS for Pittsburgh, which was Barry Bonds's last year with the Pirates before he went to San Francisco, the team that lost in, uh, lost in the NLCS to the um to the Braves I believe was that the Sid Bream year or was the Sid Bream year the yes. previous year that was the Sid Bream year I think 92 was the Bream year cuz it was kind of like they won't you know it was like as that happened everybody kind of already knew that Bonds was probably going to be gone so it was sort of like the nail in the coffin I could be watch me say all this and then be wrong about it but I'm going to look up the Sid Bream I'm almost positive it's the 92 Braves, but I'll check. I, I was aware of Wakefield being somewhere else before that. That was 92, by the way, I checked. Um, yeah. Two two starts, two mm-hmm. wins, and two complete games in that NLCS, which is, you think about it, they lost the series four to three, right? So that's two of their three wins right there is, uh, is Wakefield. Yeah, I, I knew he had been somewhere. I did. I, I you could. I thought maybe he'd been a few different places. I did not realize until we started looking into this that he'd been on the Red Sox as early as nineteen ninety five. To be honest with you, if you told me his first year with them was two thousand, I, I probably would have believed it. Um, we all know knuckleball, and there's not many knuckleballers left. Knuckleballers do have long careers, or or, or can you know possibly have long careers they don't usually stay with the same team for 17 seasons or whatever it was. So, I mean, that in and of itself is pretty incredible to be on the same team from 1995 to 2011 from when you're 25 years old until you're 28 years old until you're 44 is, uh, is remarkable absent anything else. Absolutely. And he even, you know, would jump back and forth between the starting rotation, the bullpen. He seemed to sometimes always be the first person off the rotation, but would periodically hit streaks where you just felt he was unstoppable. And uh, one of my favorite memories of him, I think it was back in the mid 2000s, 2006, 2005, 2006. Um, after I think it was the 2005 season, the Red Sox had let Doug Mirabelli go, who had become <laughs> his personal catcher. Um, and he really, you know, struggled early the following season. And on a day of his start, it was announced that they had traded to get Mirabelli back. And in order for him to make it to the ballpark in time, state troopers met him at Logan Airport and he had a uh, he had a an escort to get to the park so that he could be there for a 705 start. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that's one of my memories of him was was remembering when that when the Red Sox, I couldn't place the year exactly, but when they had to reacquire Doug Mirabelli because they thought somebody else would be able to pick it up, and then obviously, well, no pun intended, but I'll go with it now. They literally couldn't pick it up; they were chasing after <laughs> the ball constantly. I'm looking up Mir um, Wakefield's sort of postseason statistics, and you're right. You know, in addition to 92, uh, he was, his Red Sox. He was brutal in the postseason. He had some tough times. I mean, 98 
in the ALDS, which I didn't even remember. The Red Sox made the playoffs in 1998. Um, his ERA was 33. But, you know, 2003, he was pretty good. He actually, he won two games in the 03 ALCS against the Yankees. You know, obviously the game seven, he let up the, the home run to Aaron Boone in the whatever that was, the 11th or 12th inning. But, um, I was hoping he won two to focus on that. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to move past that. Just I'm not going to be like, oh, that's what I remember about it. But he, won, he, I didn't realize he won two games in that series. Yeah. Um, he got a win in the 04 ALCS against the Yankees. I don't know which game that was. I'm assuming it wasn't Game Seven because that game was over before Game Six was. Um, pitched in the World Series. Didn't he? Didn't seem to do very well in the World Series, but the. Uh, 12.270 RA, but certainly didn't come back to bite them. So, you know, he they pitched guy pitched in the 1992 and 2008 playoffs. So that's uh that's also quite a uh, a remarkable feat, but um, you know, was a key member of of that 04 team, which is obviously forever going to be uh, you know, if you're one of those guys who contributed in any fashion, you're going to be remembered fondly as a Red Sox. And I want to talk in a second about one specific way he contributed, which I didn't even realize uh, until I was doing the research for this, maybe because I've blocked that whole that whole week out of my mind. But think about it from just sort of a Red Sox history point of view. He was a part of the team when Clemens was still there in 95, mm. you know, and that was the team with Mo Vaughn. Mo Vaughn was MVP that year. They went to the playoffs, lost, lost to Cleveland in the LDS. And then he was there sort of through like the early Pedro years, you know, the 99, the Troy O'Leary and Carl Everett and those types of guys that went to the playoffs a couple times and all the way through, you know, to, to two world championships. And by 07, you have some of like the guys like the Ellsbury's and the Pedroyas coming up. So in his time, he really saw a lot of Red Sox history as a player, as, and as like Allison said, as a beloved person in the community. Absolutely. Yes. He was, uh, I think the chairman or the honorary chairman of the Jimmy fund for many years was always bringing, um, kids to the hospital from the Franciscan children's hospital and just, you know, really just became, you know, such a pillar of good. Um, and like I said, even in his post, uh, post-career was still a huge part of that world. Yeah. It said he was nominated by the Red Sox eight times for the Roberto Clemente award, won it in 2010 towards the end of his career, chairman of the honorary chairman of the Red Sox foundation. So, you know, unfortunately we're talking about a guy, we just read Brooks Robinson's and, you know, not that anybody it's obviously said, but like most of the guys we're talking about, Died in 19 or born in 1937, born in 1936, born in, you know, even 1950. We're going to talk about later today. But Tim Wakefield, we say born in 1966. So we're talking about a guy who, you know, was in his 50s and uh, still very much in the prime of his life when he, 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 and he was sick for a while and, uh, you know, tried to keep it private and, um, you know, ultimately succumb. And because of his longevity, it feels like he just finished playing. In 2011, he was 44. He was the oldest player ever to play in a game for the Red Sox. So it does feel like he was not um, not all that long ago. His only all-star appearance was in 2009 at 42 years of age. So after almost all the stuff that we've talked about in 2009, he finally made an all-star team. One of the stories that I found and... Uh, I like I said I had not realized that this, but in the ALCS in 2004, when in Game Three, 
at Fenway when the Yankees are winning and they're just smacking the Red Sox 19 to eight. Wakefield goes to the manager. He goes to Francona and he says, I don't want you to have to waste our bullpen in this game. And Wakefield was supposed to pitch game four, but he volunteered. He he figured that he was the guy who really could eat up some innings. They wouldn't have to use Mike Tomlin or Keith Folk or any of these, uh, Mike Timlin, I should say they, they might as well use the Mike Tomlin, I guess, but, uh, Mike Timlin or Keith Folk or any of these other guys. So he kind of volunteered and that meant Derek Lowe pitched game four. And then, you know, the rest is rest is uh history, unfortunately, but even kind of the little things like that, maybe not what you think of as an important contribution to that Red Sox championship and that, that epic victory over the Yankees that year, but something like that, you know, sort of a small gesture and serving in a mop up role when he wasn't supposed to be, you know, if you're going to come back down from three Oh, for the first time in baseball history, you need every little bit you can get. And that helped. Yeah. And he, um, he also pitched game one of the world series that year, which um, I'm guessing had a little bit of the same after, you know, the bullpen and the starters were used so heavily in game six and seven. And you were at that game. I was at game one of the World Series, and it was probably the most incredible place to watch. That was the most incredible <laughs> baseball game I think one could ever be at. Well, I take offense given all the uh, sparsely attended June Nationals games that we've been to through the years, <laughs> but I guess uh, I guess I'll take it. So, Allison, uh, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for so much for joining us here again uh, this year to talk about uh, somebody uh, that meant a lot to to you, to the fans in Boston, and to the Red Sox, Tim Wakefield. Well, here's to hoping I'm not back with you again next year, but uh, good talking with you guys and see you later. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. All right. Uh, so moving right along, uh, Andrew, do you want to tell us about uh, yet another honoree on this year's In Memoriam? Sure. Dick Butkus, born in 1942, passed away on October 5th. Considered by many to be the greatest middle linebacker of all time, Butkus played nine seasons with the Chicago Bears in the late 1960s and early 70s. He was an eight-time Pro Bowler in his nine seasons and was named Defensive Player of the Year in both 1969 and 1970. Butkus was named to both the both the NFL's 75th and 100th anniversary teams. And we are glad to have us uh, glad to have with us again uh, another guest uh, who you heard earlier on Jim Brown, and that's George Bazika, uh, who is the president of the Professional Football Researchers Association, the PFRA, and also hosts uh, the official PFRA podcast along with his son on the uh, on the Sports History Network. So, uh, George, thanks for joining us to talk about another all time great. Absolutely. Um- could you have a better name than Dick Butkus and be a middle <laughs> linebacker? That is sort of the football name, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. I always I always remember Butkus, too, because that was the name of Rocky's dog in the Rocky series. Yep. Butkus. <laughs> I, and, and whenever I, I watch a Rocky movie, which I probably watch those movies over and over again, you know, every time they're on, I think everybody does. Yep. But I, I always remember Butkus, the dog, and I always think about Dick Butkus. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think you're in uh, you're not alone in uh, watching Rocky movies every time we find them on TV. Yeah, I think that's yeah. uh, that that could be one of the <laughs> one of the Ten Commandments of, uh, of the Hello Old Sports podcast. Um, so, yeah. So, Butkus, um, one of the things I found that I was researching, and this just might give you an idea of kind of what he was. 
1999, uh, and I think we probably, Andrew, I'm sure remembers this, and, and George, you might also, ESPN did their their top 100 of all time uh, list. Um, and I and I still object to the fact that Babe Ruth was second and Michael Jordan was first, but that's a that's a different story. And this was everybody. This was boxers. This was right. this was soccer players. This was you know baseball, basketball, football, right. hockey, you name right. it, Olympians. And Dick Butkus was on the list. He was number seventy, mm-hmm. and I think he was one of only two. I think he and Lawrence Taylor might have been the only two defensive football players that made the list, you know, Deion Sanders was on there, but that's obviously a little bit different case. And I may be missing one or two, but this guy was on that level. He is not just an all time great linebacker, Chicago bear football player, whatever. He is one of the all time greats of American sports. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's any question. Uh, I mean, he, uh, you know, he was just, you know, I, I, the thing I remember and, you know, sort of doing a little bit of research for our discussion tonight was, and I, and I have the issue. I remember Sports Illustrated put out their 1970 preview issue, and it was the, the cover was Butkus, and it was the most feared man in the game. And that's definitely what he was, and that was sort of his claim to fame. You know, I saw people refer to him as, you know, a disruptor, you know, the intimidator, uh, you know, just – ferocious. I mean, he was basically all of those things. He, he played with a anger and, you know, meanness, you know, he, he'd even invent something because he felt that he could play his best at that. So he played with anger. I think he became too, you know, obviously he was famous because he, you know, was so dominating during the time he was with the bears. Uh, and, you know, he was the, the heart and soul of that defense. But then I think people also remember, the after NFL Dick Butkus, who was an actor uh, and, you know, appeared in many commercials and sort of played, you know, with that image, you know, and used it, you know, in, in the commercials. I remember, you know, obviously the uh, Miller Light beer commercials with him and some of the others, Bubba Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, so he became just almost as famous with some of that stuff you know, and playing off of that image and sort of having fun with it. Uh, so, yeah, he was he was just an amazing football player. You know, I know earlier we spoke, uh, not sure the order, but, uh, you know, I, I, I also talked about Jim Brown, who was dominating at his position. Well, I think Dick Buckers was every bit as dominating a linebacker as a Jim Brown was a running back. And one of the things that was really amazing to me, and I, I guess it, 1965 draft for the Bears, they had two first-round picks. They took Butkus with the third pick, and they took Gale Sayers with the fourth pick. In the first round, can you imagine two future Hall of Famers being picked in the same draft in the first round back to back? That just amazed me. And you would have had to have been a really, uh, really messed up organization at the time to have the number one overall draft pick in that draft and not pick either one of them. Right, Andrew? Yeah, who did the Giants pick that year? Was that uh, that wasn't Tucker Frederickson, was it? That was indeed Tucker Frederickson. Yeah, Tucker Frederickson. (laughs) To be fair, the Bears made those picks and still won about as much as the Giants in the next ten years. Which is is another topic that they were as good as Dick Butkus was. What was his best year? Like six and eight or something like that with the Bears. I think that's not to diminish him. But that's just crazy that he was that much of a legend. You know. Right. 70th on the all century yeah. ESPN yeah. list and it never even played in a playoff game. 
No, neither he or Sarah's. That's just, I think, I think that's just an amazing thing that, that is, as, you know, mm-hmm. as good as they both were, that they never played in a playoff game. And just, uh, you know, they had this, they both missed the 63 championship, which the Bears, uh, you know, uh, uh, beat the Giants in sort of a defensive slugfest. But they, they missed that. Uh, and then they did not make the playoffs during that time. And they were basically had a losing record during that time frame. Yeah, that, that was two things about the Bears that blew me away when I, I finally grew up and put context to it. One was that they didn't start playing at Soldier Field until the mid-70s. In my head, I always thought that was like, oh, they played at Soldier Field in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And two was that for all those years, Dick Butkus, they were never even decent for the most part when he was there. But um, that says more about the team around him than it d- does Butkus because he was every bit as dominating. And I think you talked about some of the roles after the fact, you know, acting roles, and everything. They all had sort of the underpinnings. The word that always comes to mind with him is menacing to yeah. me, yeah. even as an actor or in a yeah. commercial yeah. or something. It was like he was somehow invoking how menacing he was on the football field without doing anything. He would right. smile. He'd be in a suit right. or whatever. Right. 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 But even when he was 60, you were like, this guy's pretty dangerous. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think that there was a certain tongue-in-cheek atmosphere to that. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he, I think he just loved to play off of that. I think that's what it was. You know, he, he knew what his image was, and he knew, you know, who he was, and you know, I just think he did a great job of, you know, playing off of that. Uh, quick- you know, I, I think it was amazing too. He was called by some. I, I think Deacon Jones said that he was uh, a monster. You know, he referred mm-hmm. to him as just a monster. You know, I mean, he was just. You know, he, he, you know, the fact that some people said he didn't want to just tackle you. He wanted to crush you. You know, that that that's just the way he was. A couple of interesting things that I found in my research. Um, Mike Lombardi, who uh, uh, is the football analyst, some of you all may have heard of. He just wrote a book called Football Done Right, uh, setting the record straight on the uh, coaches, players and history of the NFL. I think Darren uh, of the Pigskin Dispatch might have actually had him on as a guest. And Lombardi thinks that. uh Dick Butkus would be even more valuable today because he was so good at so many different things as a middle linebacker that he would mm-hmm. never have had to come off the field. So he right. would have been a guy who was even more valuable in all these days of all of these uh, these substitutions and everything. So I, th- I thought that was interesting because beyond just the the menacing factor, like you talked about, Andrew, just the fact that he was also a very versatile defensive player. I also found as I was researching that George Hallis really hated players with agents and Dick Butkus was only the third player with an agent that Hallis drafted. I don't know who the second one was, but or I, I, I wrote it down and I, I can't find where I wrote it down if I'm being honest, but the first one was Red Grange. So he was in good company. I think by that point, Red Grange already, you know, was, was a, you know, a, a almost, you know, a, a quote unquote movie star in his own right. So he had no choice with Red Grange. So in a lot of ways, Dick Butkus is only the second player that George Hallis is high enough on to to actually tolerate an agent. So I, I thought that was interesting too. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that seemed to be a common thread with the old school owners that they 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 uh you know didn't like agents, didn't like uh you know the players getting more and more power and you know they wanted to be in total control of the situation, including contract negotiations and all those things. Uh, you know, after he retired, I guess Budkus actually sued the Bears, and he, him and Hallis didn't speak for a number of years, and they finally made amends. But uh, you know, those those old school owners, they they didn't like that. They wanted to be in control of that situation, so that that's not surprising because you know you look at you know 
guys like, you know, Paul Brown and, uh, you know, even, even modern day Vince Lombardi, you know, those guys, uh, they, uh, there really was something to that, you know, uh, iron fist attitude as owners. And it's funny because just a few, uh, a few, uh, honorees ago we talked with darren about johnny glujak who was another guy who left yes. the bears under bad circumstances and then didn't speak to him for decades andrew go ahead and yeah. make your point i was just gonna say some of these guys like a butt kiss or, or a, you know jim brown who we talked about a little earlier i think some of it was probably they went out to hollywood and they you know started getting commercials and tv roles and movies and they saw how those guys you know i think it's hard not to see that and then go right Oh, I'm getting kind of screwed in this other aspect where yes. I basically yeah. just play and do what this guy tells me to do for what he's willing to pay me. Right. And, you know, I think there's probably not a coincidence that a lot of those guys after that had acrimony with their uh, their team owners. No, there's no question. Being in Hollywood, I think they would definitely get that because, I mean, you hear, uh, you know, you just hear legendary stories. I, I, I in addition to be loving football history i'm a bit of a movie buff too and you just hear legendary stories about you know some of the famous agents out in hollywood like swifty lazar mm-hmm. or uh, you know sue mengers or something like that you know i mean they're they're legendary stories out there so yeah i think that's part of it i mean obviously mm-hmm. you know you go out there and you see these agents that are getting these big contracts for the actors and stuff like that and you say hey what about me you know i'm being taken advantage yeah. of them so yeah yeah, and acting no is a hard profession, but you're not getting your head bashed in or no, somebody else's head in. Yeah, most definitely not. Yeah. Well, well, um, well, George, uh, you ha- we had you on earlier to uh, to talk about Jim Brown, and we we also talked a little bit about the PFRA and all the exciting opportunities for uh, for sports fans and football history buffs there. So thanks for doing that, and thanks for being on uh, to talk to us about another all time great in Dick Butt because we really enjoyed it as always. Yeah, I enjoyed it also. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you, George. Take care. Sure, you too. Thanks, George. Thanks. All right, let's move on and talk about Frank Howard, who was born in 1936 and died on October 30th. Howard played 17 years in the major leagues with the Dodgers, Senators, Rangers, and Tigers. He won Rookie of the Year with L.A. in 1960 and was a World Series champion in 1963. Traded to the Washington Senators in 1965, he twice led the American League with 44 home runs. He also hit the first home run in Texas Rangers history. So uh, just to sort of break, uh, break, the, uh, break the fourth wall here, uh, Andrew and I have sort of been recording these in you know, bits and pieces, and you've heard so many of our great guests uh, coming, coming on to talk about people um, through the uh, you know over the last uh, several episodes, we just heard from uh, from three in a row on uh, Francis Wakefield and Butkus. But tonight, Andrew and I specifically have recorded about Brooks Robinson and Tim Wakefield, and those were two guys that were really beloved in the communities that they played with. And Frank Howard sort of has some of that same uh, so some of that same dynamic going on with him. He is really really beloved in the DC baseball area. And in fact, I'm sure I've seen this at some part. I've at some point I've been to dozens of nationals games and I, and I, I must've seen this at some point, but I've, to the life of me, I can't remember it. There are three statues of former DC players at Nats park. And that's Walter Johnson, Josh Gibson, who played for years with the Homestead grays and the Negro leagues and the Homestead grays uh, spent time playing both in Pittsburgh and in DC and the third is Frank Howard. And there are a lot of people who are still around who remember rooting for Frank Howard 
It was only a very brief period of time. He got traded there in the mid 60s. And by the early 70s, the senators had moved to Texas. But for that six or seven year period, Frank Howard not only was the most loved player on the Washington senators, he really put up some monster years for the team in those years. Yeah, 68, 69, 70. He's in the top 10 in MVPs all three of those years. Uh, he's all-star in, in all of those years as well as 71, which was the last year uh, that the second iteration of the Senators was in Washington before moving to Texas in 72. Yeah, you mentioned um, some of those years, 68 and 69, especially, you know, 44 home runs in 68. Well, I guess I guess really 68, 69 and 70. The whole the power numbers go 44, 48, 44 for home runs, 106, 111, 126 for RBIs. He's over 100 walks two of those seasons, Um, you know, and those it's such an interesting period of time because. The original Nationals, the team that moved in 1960, hadn't really been anything whatsoever to speak of in decades before they moved, certainly not since World War II. The Nationals that took over as an expansion team that were only around for about 11 years didn't really start any better than that. And then after 1972 until 2005, there's no baseball in D.C., Mm-hmm. And you could argue 2009, 2010, um, based on some of those teams when I was living down there. But um, the uh, so really, if you were a baseball fan, a DC baseball fan who was less than 90 or, or I guess 80 at the time, but older than, you know, 16, all you had for like a 50 year period or a 40 year period to sort of hang your hat on as seeing a really good player was Frank Howard. So that's why I think he occupies such a space in, you know, they never won any pennants. I know they, they had a couple of surprisingly good years, especially in 1969 where they were in it till the end. But um, he was sort of the best and in some ways only thing DC baseball had from World War II. You know, I don't want to be as hyperbolic and say between Walter Johnson and Bryce Harper, but, I'm not that far off with that. He is a huge man. He is 6'7", 255 pounds, one of the tallest players in Major League history, especially in those days. He hits some tape measure shots. He is one of only three players to ever... uh, Let me just make sure I get this right. He is one of uh, three players ever to clear the left field stands at Tiger Stadium. The first was Harmon Killebrew, another former D.C. player. And the third was Cecil Fielder in 1993. And then the middle, the second one was Frank Howard in, uh, I believe it was 69, but I'd have to have to verify that. He also hits a lot of tape measure home runs at RFK Stadium. And the... Now, uh, the uh, the senators, they put white paint on the seats in the upper deck that Frank Howard hits uh, with his home runs. And that white paint remains there even after the senators leave for another, you know, 30 some odd years, uh, you know, through all the years of the Redskins playing there and all this, you know, all that interregnum time. But when the senators or sorry, when the Expos moved to D.C., 
they're they're getting their own park, but they have to play a couple years at RFK. And so this is a story from 2005, and the Yank the Nationals are playing the Mets at RFK. And this is a story told by Tim Kirkjian, who's a longtime baseball writer for ESPN and some other places. Somebody who we actually uh, saw on the street in Cooperstown a couple of years ago when we were at the Hall of Fame inductions because he had been inducted into the writers' wing the day before, and we actually saw Tim Kirkjian being interviewed on the street. But anyway. He's talking to Tom Glavin and uh, Tom Glavin uh, is wondering about these seats. And Kirkshin says that's where Frank Howard hit home runs 40 or 50 years ago. And Tom Glavin is a really smart guy. And he said, no, that's impossible. No one could hit it up there uh, because no, <laughs> nobody currently was go- hitting even close to up there, even in batting practice. And Kirkshin says, Tom, that's where he hit it. I swear I grew up here. This is where he hit balls. And Tom Glavin goes, well, then home plate must not have been where where it is now. <laughs> so, um, and I should just give a plug uh, two books actually. This I just read from a book by a guy by the name of Frederick Cromer is a go- by called book called You Got to Have Heart, which is basically an entire history of DC baseball going back to the 19th century, and it covers the Senators both iterations. It covers all the Nats stuff over the last 15 years ago. It covers the Negro Leagues and you know Gibson and the Homestead Grace. So there's another great book called uh, A Whole New Ball Game by Stephen J. Walker, which is the uh, the story of the 1969 uh, Washington Senators teams that was so surprisingly good. I actually helped uh, helped prepare the the questions for this book when I used to uh, used to help out with the baseball by the book podcast. I think it was actually the first one I ever did. So that that was also a good source of information on on Frank Howard and those those years of the Senators. So so check out both of those. So yeah, he really you know. His best years are definitely with the Senators, but then he's also a part of one of the great uh, teams of all time with the 63 Dodgers that shuts out the Yankees. The Koufax Drysdale team shuts out the Yankees in the in the postseason. So he's got a World Series ring to his name, too. So that that's another important part of his his career and his legacy. Couple interesting things about Howard before we move on that I thought were uh, he he has a long career in coaching. Um, he is a coach on some teams that immediately jump out as you as being horrendous teams. So he's he's with the Brewers in for a few years in the late eight uh, late seventies. He's on the Mets. He's on the Mets coaching staff eighty two to eighty four, which is really before they get good. Back with the Brewers, the late eighties Mariners, the Yankees in nineteen eighty nine, and then nineteen ninety one through nineteen ninety three. The Mets in 1994 to 1996, and then the first two years of the Devil Rays. So his career winning percentage as a manager was probably not all that good. Um, And the other thing I found was interesting was uh, even though he was from Ohio and, um, you know, went to obviously never ended up playing for one of these teams. You know where he spent almost all of his like 30 years off seasons was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Really? That's where he met his wife, his first wife, and that's where they lived. Um, you know, I just I saw that, and then I searched Frank Howard Green Bay, and some articles come up. Um, actually, as I searched Frank Howard Green Bay, the Wisconsin Historical Society brings up the address they lived at <laughs> in three twelve. The house was built in nineteen fifty nine, uh, right after they were married in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which was also the year Vince Lombardi got to Green Bay. Jeez, and then he came to D.C. right around the same time as Vince. Well, a couple years after, but his glory year with the, with the Senators was the same year that Lombardi was in D.C. Mm. 
And he also one more just think one more thing from a DC point of view that I should note is that he was a longtime advocate after the senators left. He was a longtime advocate for bringing baseball back to DC, and obviously got to see that come to fruition about twenty years ago. So, um, so, so a, a, a real sort of a champion of of basketball and or sorry of, of baseball coming major league baseball coming back to the DC area. Moving along here with our in memoriam, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Bobby Knight who was born in 1940 and passed away on November 1st. A controversial figure throughout his career, Knight won three NCAA championships as head coach of the Indiana Hoosiers and is the fourth winningest coach in Division I men's basketball history. His 1976 Indiana team remains the last undefeated NCAA champion in Division I men's history. He was fired from Indiana in 2000 and went on to coach at Texas Tech, before retiring in 2008, there are always a few. Um, and I, I, I want to be careful how I say this, because I don't mean this to sort of, you know, downplay anybody. But when I put this list together, there's always some people that are on it that it's a question, you know, do they really make it? Or even sometimes it's like, OK, these people do make it, but. You know, we know that we're going to I mean, I know that I'm going to have to do some research or some digging to find out some more about them. Um, as there were every year, however, there were a few who the minute I saw that they had passed away, you knew that they were going to be a big subject of conversation. You know, the one that comes immediately to mind uh, for this year is Jim Brown uh, and, and Dick Butkus was another one. Uh, Brooks Robinson, you know, greatest defensive third baseman of, of all time, who you heard us talk about a little bit ago. Willis Reed is another one. You know, there, there's certain guys, and especially in the big three sports that Andrew and I mostly cover, that you know are going to be major topics of conversation. Bobby Knight is one of those. And I uh, am, am really glad I, it's, I'm, Andrew uh, is not able to, to join us for this one, but I'm really glad to have back with me for the third and final time on this year's special uh, sports uh, history network colleague, uh, Dana Guster of the historically speaking sports podcast, uh, Dana, welcome back. And I think this will be, uh, this will be an interesting one. To say the least, uh, when you talk about Bob Knight, okay, I, I got to say this. I recently did on the show earlier, I did Denny Crum. Mm-hmm. Now I'm doing Bobby Knight. A little bit different. No coach. No two coaches that were as different from Denny Crum to Bob Knight. And, of, of course, everybody, when you hear the name Bobby Knight, the first image that you think of was that famous night in February 1985 when he throws the chair across the court when they're playing Purdue. That was only like five minutes in the game. The score mm-hmm. was like 11 to 6. Indiana was up 11 to 6. And... Knight gets a foul, gets a technical foul for yelling at a ref, obviously. And then he walks away, grabs the chair, just throws it over to the, throws it across the court. Everybody knows that. See, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. The explanation is pure night. Somebody asked him at the end of the game, but why did you throw the chair? This is great. And he says, I saw a little old lady sitting in the corner of that, in, a, in the corner looking for a place to sit, so I just threw it with the chair. <laughs> That's Bob Knight, okay? Another great story, and I heard this one recently. He, of course, was the coach of the gold medal 1984 Olympic basketball team that featured Michael Jordan and 
I think Wayman Tisdale was on that team, and 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 uh, Patrick Ewing was on that team, and the, the Olympics were in LA, and they were playing Spain, and they and Team USA at halftime. This is for the gold medal. Team USA was up by like twenty nine points, and Michael Jordan had this unbelievable first half, eighteen points. I think he had something like ten rebounds. Uh, I think he had seven assists, something like that. Well, anyway, he has to get, he says, I got to get on these guys, but I don't know how. They played probably the best half of basketball we've played in these Olympics. But I got to do something to get these guys riled up because, you know, young kids, big lead, they're going to relax. I can't get them to relax. So what he did was he goes in there and the first person he sees is Michael Jordan. Now you got to remember, Michael Jordan is only like what, just turned 21 years old. So he looks at Jordan and he has the stats in his hand and he says, Dang it, Mike, you, when are you going to set a screen? <laughs> and Mike looked at him like, what are you talking about? Say, when are you going to set a screen? All you've been doing is you haven't set not one screen yet. All you've done, all you've done was score. All you've done was rebound. And all you've done was assist. When are you <laughs> going to set a dog on screen? And Mike looked at him and he says, didn't I hear you say a couple of days ago that I am the, one of the fastest players that you've ever seen? He said, yeah, then what does that have to do with anything? And Mike says, maybe I'm setting them faster than you can see them. <laughs> and Bob Knight looked at him and he says, well, what you need to do, you need to slow down so I can see them. And walked away. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Bob Knight was a true character, um, but he was a brilliant. I, 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 the best way I could put it is that Bob Knight in coaching was like the, the, the tortured painter. That is a genius painter, but, and he's like impatient with everybody that's not on the same level of thinking as he is. He was known as the general, started off coaching at Army, famously coached Mike Krzyzewski, Mm -hmm. you know, this kid from, I think from Chicago, and taught him the game of basketball, and he ends up being one of the greatest coaches of all time. And, but Bob Knight's, of course, everybody knows his volatile nature. Everybody knows his press conferences, his press conference rants during his career at Indiana were legendary, but also his teams were legendary. Three national championships, as you mentioned before, the last team to go undefeated in college basketball. Many teams have come close and have tried, including my UNLV team in 1991 that unfortunately ended against Duke, but that's another story for another day. Uh, but this team, his teams were always mentally tough. His teams were always pre- over, was very prepared, physical. They rarely made mistakes, and that was directly came from the top, and that was from Bob Knight. That was during that time period in the 80s where sort of a different college coach was getting an opportunity to coach the, the NCAA team uh, every year. I, I think, uh, I don't remember who was, who it was in 80, uh, 80. It was, uh, AV was Dave Gavitt from Providence later, one of the big time founders of the big East. And then 88 was John Thompson. And yeah, Bobby Knight, the other thing that was famous of him for that 84 team was he cut Charles Barkley. That was sort of <laughs> yeah. the big, the big thing. Now it didn't didn't end up hurting them that much because they they won the gold medal and they they had one of the greatest uh, you know greatest Olympic teams of all time, especially sort of pre pre NBA. But 
uh, you know, he, he did, he did coat, uh, cut Charles Barkley for, for probably a number of reasons, the two very, very different, but also very, uh, very similar personalities. And the thing with Knight is the guy believed what he believed and did not waver from that. And, you know, th- there's so many good things in his category. You- his players all basically graduated. You know, I'm sure there were yeah. a few here and there, but everybody graduated. He, in a lot of ways, worked with them like a teacher. And, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this, with, you know, the great uh, John Feinstein book, Season on the Brink, which I actually, yeah. before Dana beat me to it, I had pulled the story of the chair throwing and the little old lady from the book and I was going to read it. So classic story, a, a sort of a great, great view into the the bob knight world and the bob knight psyche he used to say to his players basketball should be your favorite class he viewed and i think he actually even taught at indiana university he taught taught some sort of a class on military military tactics military history something like that if i'm i may be messing up the details here maybe remembering that a little bit incorrectly but then there was also the temper and there was the thing, you know, there was the chair throwing, there was the being perceived as choking the player. And then mm-hmm. what, what brought it to a, to a head in 2000 was after this zero tolerance, tolerance uh, policy had been announced for him. He, he put his hand on a student and that yeah. was what sort of drove him out and kind of led to a kind of a bitter divorce of him in Indiana in for almost two decades. He refused to attend alumni events, team reunions, that type of thing. And we talked a little bit about Denny Crum and older coaches and how that maybe, you know, the COVID outbreak affected them for a few years. Right before COVID hit, Bobby Knight was just sort of starting to re-embrace the Indiana community. He'd been back a couple of times in 19 and 20. I think he got a standing ovation at a game in 2020 so that reconciliation was just starting to take place there but he will always be associated with very strident qualities of the man both good and bad well he was nicknamed the general and in the state of indiana and when you talk about basketball in indiana the most you have to understand that basketball in that state is a secular religion. Mm-hmm. And if it's a secular religion from 1971 to the time that he left in, in 2000, he was the Pope, essentially. Mm-hmm. He was Indiana through and through, even though he from Ohio, uh, but he was Indiana basketball. I remember, I don't know. I don't remember which song it was, but I think there was a video by John Cougar Mellencamp, and there is a clip of Bob Knight teaching at a basketball clinic, just a little small clip uh-huh. in the music video, and of how talking John Cougar Mellencamp is talking about you know Indiana. And, well, I, I forgot the name of the song because it's going to come to me after I leave here. I got guaranteed. <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, it, when you think of Indiana. And basketball is like high school football in Texas. You know, it is a secular religion. The whole state shuts down whenever there's an Indiana game on. Um, India and, and Bob Knight was the center of all of that. You know, and we touched on a little bit about that '76 undefeated team. 
And if you really look at that team, it wasn't really a lot. There wasn't like this one main superstar that just came on the scene and just led everything. They had Scott May. They had Kent Benson. They had Quinn Buckner. Those were really good pieces, but they wasn't like over the top talented. They were talented nonetheless. They, all of them had long careers in the NBA, except me. I think Scott May didn't have as long a career as Kent Benson or Quinn Buckner for sure. But he, but those teams were so mentally tough and all of his teams were mentally tough. Um, they just went out there and got the job done and they were so methodical in their offense, you know, with his famous motion offense. Uh, he was, you know, a lot of his was a lot of his offense came was off the high post. Uh, it was a very, very hard defense, hard offense to really figure out because his players that was on the floor at all times were so mentally tough. You know, and in playing for somebody like a Bob Knight, you have to be mentally tough. Mm-hmm. And his practices, for what I read, were brutal. Yeah. Other than the obvious fact that when you hear about Bobby Knight, it's his 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 physical nature. Let's just put it that way. Um, but his practices, he made sure that they were ready to whoever they played, whether it's for the final four or it'd be the first game of the year. It didn't matter. His he he was he was going to make um sure that he was that you were going to be ready for whoever you played. There were some interesting things about him. Um one of the things that I think doesn't really get mentioned, and this is this has always been so sort of ironic to me, given his relationship with the media. Now, after he left Texas Tech, he became a studio analyst and he did some. I don't know if he ever actually did color. You know, I, you know, if you actually he did color did he do for some a color? few okay. games that I remember, he did. What was so funny was that you know how you have color analysts doing basketball games and they use the telestrator. Yeah. Well, he didn't use the telestrator. What he did was he took the old dry erase boards, and the camera would put would be on him. And the dry erase board, and he'd be like draw, diagramming what happened as he's di- as if he was diagramming a play in the huddle. That's what he would do, and I thought that was so charming. He did that for like maybe I think he was a color analyst on ESPN for college basketball for like maybe four years. Right, he did after it for he a few, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it was very, he always came, he always wore like his little you know, red or gray sweater. You know, he didn't wear like a jacket or a suit or anything like that. He always wore his, his famous sweater that he would wear, you know, a sweater vest or whatever it was. Um, but he was just a very interesting guy. He was also part of those great Ohio State teams as a player. Yep. A lot of people don't remember that he was a pretty good player as, you know, for Ohio State. He went to three Final Fours as a player. Uh, Teammate with Ohio of uh, State, John with, Havlicek, right? With John Havlicek and Jerry Lucas. And Lucas was the other one. That's right. John Havlicek and Jerry Lucas. Uh, they beat, I think it was California, the Pete Newell California coach team in 1960. And then they lost back-to-back years to, to Cincinnati, I believe. But he was, and, and there's a quick story about that, is that in the second, in 62, he was a reserve forward. And the coach, I forgot the coach's name right offhand, but he put him in the game. Okay, I think this is doing doing the championship game. Mm-hmm. And he hit like two or three baskets in a row. And he runs up the court and he tells the coach, 
if you would have put me in there earlier, we wouldn't be in this problem. And it, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which, again, gives you an example of Bob Knight. And, you know, he was so confident isn't within his own abilities, but he was just a basketball genius, you know, through and through. And and like you, you sort of started to allude to, all of these different figures that he touched, you know, played with Havlicek and Jerry Lucas, coached, Shashevsky and you know coach Shashevsky coached Isaiah Thomas on his second yes. national championship team had Larry Bird uh, at IU for a little a, a very short period of time which is its own whole whole other story uh was friends with Bill Parcells uh because yes, they were very good Army, friends very good friends at at the same time um the story I was going to tell was and this is actually sort of fitting because um a little while ago, Dana was on talking about Billy Packer and Billy Packer went from NBC to CBS in the early eighties when CBS got, um, CBS got, uh, the rights to, to NCA tournament and, and the final four around that same time when CBS brought in, you know, received the rights to college basketball and, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to sort of mess up some small details to this story, but, but so be it. Um, Bobby Knight in the early eighties has already won two NCAA championships as a coach. And he is sort of looking to do the next thing. And he starts to really muse out loud about, and he's being pursued by CBS to be, their lead analyst on their new college basketball coverage. He starts to sort of muse out loud. And, and I think, and, and again, I, I tried to find the story and I couldn't find it. It might've actually been Ted Williams that he was talking about because Ted Williams, in addition to being probably the greatest hitter of all time, was also um, considered a, a, like one of the best fly fishers in the world. I believe it was. Yeah. And Bobby Knight at one point sort of muses out loud. I wonder what it would be like to be the best in the world at two different things, basically putting forth that he's going to try and become the best basketball analyst in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you know the story? I, I, I've heard the story. You know, I, I, I've heard something like that. Okay. You know, um, but and there's another, but there's another piece to it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I've heard the story up to that point. I didn't I don't remember how the story ends up or whatever, but you could you could really understand and you could really buy yeah. that coming from him. You really could. Um you really could. I mean, because he was an outstanding coach, you know, and a great and, and sure. he wanted to be good at something else. The next like you said, the next big thing or the next thing in this and that's just the way he was. So, you know, looking for the next challenge, looking for the next the next big thing. And uh that's one of the things about him that I found very, very interesting. So and this is all happening after they win the title with mm -hmm. um in eighty one. With led by Isaiah Thomas, who then uh, graduates and go, you know gets drafted by the Pistons, and which was another, also that the '81 national championship game was also very interesting for another event. But go ahead, <laughs> I will get. Yeah, so I want to get to that in a second. I want we'll, maybe we'll close with that. But the this Landon Turner, who's one of the players on the Hoosiers, yeah, Landon Turner, yeah, 
mm-hmm. and Landon Turner, after they win the championship, he's expected to be sort of the star of the team the following year. In the offseason, he gets in a car accident and is paralyzed. And yeah. Bobby Knight says to himself and you know to others, he says, I just can't leave Indiana, the players, the team, the campus in the wake of what just happened to Landon Turner. Now, whether if when push comes to shove, Bobby Knight would actually have taken the final step to sign on as a broadcaster and leave Indiana and go to the broadcasting booth, who knows? But that's always been the story that's sort of been told is that had it not been for the paralysis of Landon Turner in this horrible car accident, that maybe Knight would have stayed with um would have stayed with Indiana um or would have left Indiana and gone to the broadcast booth. So something interesting. And I remember the first time I heard that, how interesting I thought it was just because of the horrible relationship he had with with the with media Indiana, and the press. With, the, you with the those. press and everything yeah. else. Right. Um, so why don't when, you why don't you to close this, uh, Dana? Why don't you talk a little bit about that 81 uh, title game? Well, the 81 title game, I was um, I was eight years old mm-hmm. and it happened in the championship game. They're playing North Carolina. Uh, they had James Worthy, Sam Perkins, Al Wood, Jimmy Black. I mean, that team, uh, once again, was loaded one year away from winning it all the next year in, in, um, in New Orleans. This is this just before Jordan gets there, basically. No, the year before Jordan gets there, right. Yeah. He was still in high school. And it was in 81 in Philly. And I remember coming home that day looking forward to watching the game with my grandpa. And I get home, and everybody's looking at the TV. And we're like, and I'm like, what's going on? Because I'm, I'm eight years old. I'm like, okay, where's my peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I want to <laughs> sit down and watch cartoons before I start on my homework so I can watch the game later. And my mom was like, I don't think you're going to be watching cartoons today. I'm like, why? What's going on? It said the president's been shot. Oh, that's right. It was the same. That's right. I forgot about that. That was the day. And, and, my, shot. and I was like, what do you mean shot? With a gun? You know, and, mm-hmm. and my mom's like, yes, he's in hospital right now. And the one they were thinking about postponing the game that night because, you know, there was a chance that he may not make it. It just depends on what happens in surgery because they had to move into emergency surgery mm-hmm. and all of that. And as the powers that be, they decided to play the game. It, we got a lot of criticism for them playing the game that night. Howard Cosell came out and said they shouldn't have done it and everything, which was Knight's second national title. Isaiah Thomas goes absolutely berserk in that game. It was had a great, great game that catapulted him to go to the NBA that next year as a sophomore, after his sophomore season, I should say, by the way. But, yeah, I mean, that was – you know, that day, it was nine, uh, March 30th, 1981, and that was the very same day that Reagan got shot. And they thought seriously about postponing it like a week later or a few days later or something like that. Just it all depended on what happened when he got out of surgery. Yeah, no, that's uh, I had forgotten about that because they mentioned that in the Feinstein book uh, as well. And and. Bobby Knight, who was a big fan of Ronald Reagan's politically, you know, there's there's a tie in there. And I think after the fact, you know, Reagan had kind of called to congratulate him. And that meant a lot to to Bobby Knight. And then, you know, Reagan was still president a couple of years later when Knight won his his next one as well. So, yeah, a, a, a great career. Certainly 
certainly some negatives that you can say about Bobby Knight, but uh, outweighed by the positives, I would say, both on the court and with, with some of the relationships that he did develop with some of his players. And also just worth noting for for all of the the other great sports figures that he crossed paths with during his uh, during his long career. Uh, Dana, uh, for the last time, uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, everybody, please check out the uh, Historically Speaking Sports podcast hosted by Dana on the Sports History Network. Man, thank you for having me on, man. Thanks for the plug. And once again, bro, I love doing this, talking about these guys every year, giving them the the honor and 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 everything for them for their great careers and what they did for sports and for me as as a as a fan first and foremost. We appreciate it, Dana. Thanks again. All right. Willie Hernandez, born 1954, died on November 20th. Hernandez was a three-time All-Star as a relief pitcher with the Detroit Tigers in the 1980s. His best year was in 1984 when he won both the Cy Young Award and American League MVP. That year, he saved 32 games and blew only one and was part of the Tigers' World Series championship team. And we are glad to have with us uh, yet another one of our uh, Sports History Network colleagues. I think uh, the sixth or the seventh one that's joined us so far uh, on this uh, 2023 In Memoriam special, uh, Chad Kane. Uh, Chad, thanks so much for uh, for joining us uh, here to talk about Willie Hernandez. Oh, hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Nope. Glad to do it and glad uh, glad you're able to join us uh, for the first time this year. We always really, uh, really enjoy doing this and really enjoy having uh, you know, some of our colleagues come on and join us. So um, what was it uh, about Willie Hernandez that made you want to come on and talk to us about him? Well, I had just done a podcast in I think it was October, early November about the 1984 Detroit Tigers. And I really got into that podcast um, talking about the Tigers that year because of Howard Johnson. I follow him on Twitter and him and I'd like talk back and forth every now and then. And I was said to him, like, Hey, I didn't realize you're on the 84 tigers. And so that made me want to, uh, delve dive deeper into it. And then just Willie Hernandez stuck out to me. Cause as you said, he won the Cy Young award and MVP that year, uh, with that world series ring he got that year. He was one of only three pitchers to ever have all three of those things done alongside Sandy Koufax and Denny McLean at the time. And um, the only reliever. Yeah. Uh, yep. And the only reliever out of them. So. Yeah, this was a very sort of interesting time in baseball when you had uh, relief pitchers not only winning Cy Young Awards in, in a way. I don't, I don't think there's been a relief pitcher to win a Cy Young Award, I think, since the late 80s. But not only that, but you had, especially in the American League, you had these guys winning MVPs, Raleigh Fingers in 1981, Cy Young and MVP, uh, 1992, Dennis Eckersley, Cy Young and MVP. So this was sort of a common or at least not a not an unusual thing in these days for relief pitchers to be winning the Cy Young Award and the MVP and Willie Hernandez. Like you said, he also waited the championship on top of that in 1984. Yeah. And yeah, and he was also uh, voted the best Detroit Tiger at the time. I mean, the 80s for relief pitching was just the 70s and 80s for relief pitching was quite crazy because no one really had a set role. And it just seemed like it wasn't until like the Jeff Reardon's, the Steve Bedrosen's, the uh, I mean, Tug McGraw was a was a closer in the 70s. But I mean, like in the 80s, it seems like that's when that role kind of like took off. 
and you had Eckersley switching from a starter to a closer. And when he moved to Oakland after he left the Cubs, you had Lee Smith, like Bruce Suter was was the guy at that time in the NL. So, yeah, and with Willie Hernandez coming along the scene, I mean, and this was even kind of like a crazy time for him because he was, A, drafted by the Phillies in the in the um, 70s, picked up by the Cubs uh, and as a Rule 5 draft pick, really only didn't only came in once in a while with those guys didn't really take off until that 84 season when the Tigers needed a closer and he became the guy and then and then it was basically he had the four years with the Tigers and or the five years with the Tigers and then he, he was out of baseball <laughs> so and he tried to make a couple couple comebacks so yeah and I want to talk about one of those comebacks uh, in a little bit uh, toward, toward the very end here. He actually comes to the Tigers in the 84 season. He, the previous year, he had been on the 83 Phillies, which mm-hmm. Andrew and I have touched on that team a little bit in the past. Um, this was a team with uh, kind of a lot of the big red machine guys from the 70s ended up on this the Phillies team that made the World Series in 1983, including Pete Rose at 42, Tony Perez at 41, Joe Morgan at 39. They were known as the Wheeze Kids because um, of all the old <laughs> players on the team. And then, like you said, he went to the went to the Tigers after that. You yeah. kind of wonder. You mentioned with all the um, the relievers winning MVPs and stuff. You, I feel like that was before writers and a lot of media people decided they were sort of fundamentally opposed to relief pitching as a, you know, as a concept, not, not as a concept, but as like a, you know, well, no, this is uh, this has gone too far. Basically, I feel like as in the 70s and, and early 80s, as relief pitching was becoming, you know, a bigger and bigger part of the game, it was seen as like, wow, look at what these guys are doing. They're coming in they're you know, they're, they're winning these games, they're pitching, you know, coming in in tight situations, they're closing out games. And then at some point there was just sort of this in their minds backlash to it, where it was like, well, no, these are starters awards. Relievers don't, you know, it, it, it doesn't apply to relievers. They only come in and, you know, the same reason there's was so few closers in, in the hall of fame for so long was, was because of this backlash. But I think he might've been one of the last guys to pitch in the era before that started to, be looked at a little differently and maybe the fact that the appearances were a little longer might have helped with that in in 84 he had uh he pitched more than one inning and 66 percent of his save chances so two-thirds of his save chances were more than an inning and he he saved most of them he only blew out what won that entire year so that might have been a part of it also the fact that these guys were pitching more often longer stretches that type of thing as well yeah, um, yeah. Touching on that, that last the save he blew was the last was against the Yankees, and it was like the one of the last chances he had for a save. But yeah, I mean he that year he, I mean he pitched, appeared in eighty games, had one hundred and twelve strikeouts, had the thirty two saves. He went nine and three, had a nine and three win loss record, as well. And 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 also that's another thing that I noticed with a lot of these guys like uh, Quisenberry and those guys they actually had win loss records during yeah. that time. So so yeah, I mean they were coming in mm-hmm. and, yeah, and pitching those extra innings, coming in all sorts of situations too. Mm-hmm. Not just when the team is ahead by three or two or three runs, they're coming in when the team's behind, yep. pitching, keeping them in the game enough to win. Um, and that, like you said, in addition to the saves, these guys end up with you know six, seven, eight wins in a season as well. 
And you mentioned Chad recently doing an episode on that 84 Tiger team. That is one of the great single season teams of, you know, modern baseball, you know, of, you know, my lifetime, I was born in, in 1982, you know, modern baseball, you know, they, 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 they're well known for having one, um, having led the, the American league, uh, American league East wire to wire, you know, they got, they started off the season in first place and they never relinquished it the rest of the year. So on a team with other Hall of, you know, Alan Trammell, Hall of Famer, Jack Morris, Hall of Famer, you know, other guys, Kirk Gibson, Lou Whitaker, those guys. It was Willie Hernandez who was the MVP, not just of the team, but of the entire league in 1984. Sparky Anderson uh, said after the team won, he said, first, I thanked God. Then I thanked Hernandez. And I think that maybe uh, that maybe sums it up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it does. Very much so. Yeah, that, that and that was another thing that drew me to the 84 Tigers team is because I was born in 82 as well. I was mm-hmm. two years old when they won that championship. And it's one of those championships that even talking baseball with my grandpa and my uncle all the years growing up, it was one of the teams that was never really talked about. And for what they accomplished was by far amazing. And I mean, I saw that, um, I think it was a uh, barstool or yeah, I think it was either barstool or another website had it, had them as the ninth best, uh, world series winning team of all time. Uh, for what they did. Dominant runs through the playoffs too. Didn't they go eight and one or seven and one in the playoffs? I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, because they didn't lose a game to the yeah they swept the ALCS against the Royals and then I, I'm pretty sure it was the Royals that they played and then uh, and then they uh, only lost one one game in the in the World Series I do believe mm-hmm. oh to the Padres and which... he hangs around a couple more years he he makes an All Star mm-hmm. game in '85 he makes an All Star game in '86 and actually um, Andrew do you know how he uh, he sort of ends his time in organized baseball what his last thing is that he tries to do. Well, I know he dumped water on Mitch album. Um, that was an that 80, story? that was in, uh, 88 because he had blown a save in 87 and, uh, and Mitch album made the, made a quote that after that game that the Tigers were playing basically with their pants around the ankles, around their ankles when, uh, Hernandez would take the mound because by the time yeah. of the end of the 87 season, his arm was just pretty much shot, I think. And then, yeah, so then that following March in the clubhouse, he found album and dumped uh, ice on him. I have the, the Wikipedia thing says, uh, after a poor outing in the playoffs in 1987, which I guess would have been against Minnesota, uh, Mitch Album yeah. of the Detroit Free Press wrote a column titled Familiar Nightmare, Hernandez on the Mound, in which he wrote that Hernandez in crucial situations lately has been about effective. I'm guessing there should be an as there about as effective for the Tigers as pulling down their pants. The following March, Hernandez dumped a bucket of ice water on album album complained to Tigers executives who declined to take disciplinary action against Hernandez. So I'm assuming you were referring to something else because he still had a few more years after that. But uh, yeah, he did do that. (laughs) I, I was just going to mention that he, uh, he his last thing that he did was he tried to sign on with the Yankees in 1995 as a replacement player during the yeah. strike. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, I see that here. Yep. So, you know, again, the, a guy who kind of. Unless we were going to do an episode on the 84 Tigers, probably wouldn't have come up except in this context. You know, there's these guys who he wasn't a one year wonder because he obviously right. had some good years. But really, 
shown very brightly and flamed out or just, you know, was one of the best players in baseball, but for such a short period of time Mm -hmm. that gets kind of lost to history. Yeah, definitely. And, and even to that fact, like he got like before he even left the Tigers organization at the end of the 89 season, um, which he didn't even finish that season because of arm trouble. Uh, he, he wanted to be called by Guillermo, his given name. And also he had, a um, a he had requested a trade from the Tigers too, which led the fans booing him. <laughs> so, I mean, mm-hmm. Detroit became kind of, was like happy that they, he won in 84 and then kind of like soured over him the rest of the years. So, yeah, but yeah, it's one of those guys that you definitely, uh, wouldn't think about. If you're not talking about a specific team, Absolutely. Um, I never again, I never heard of Willie Hernandez before I did the 84 Tigers. And it just happened to be, I, you know, was like, hey, I just got in time that about a month ago. So well, and now you're not only pretty good, re- pretty good reliever for the Tigers in the original RBI baseball as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have four pitchers, two starters and two relievers. Um, that's really neither here nor there, but I'm going to use an opportunity to work that in. So I figured I would. That's a part of his legacy. A little RBI well, baseball. <laughs> Chad, uh, thanks for, and, and you learned Chad so much that you, uh, you know, not only were able to do it on your own podcast, you're able to come on as an expert on ours, which we appreciate. Uh, before we let you go, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and your podcast for the sports history network? Oh yeah. Uh, it's one guy with a mic dingers and dunks. Uh, most guys thinks my name's Mike because I said one guy with a mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, it's basically baseball and basketball. Um, we have been, I sprinkle in a little bit of this. Well, this fall I've been doing football. So we've been football Fridays. So, and lately I've been trying to fit in some history and about either the baseball that's going on. And then also the current topics as well. Spend a few minutes on that. Um, haven't really got much into basketball, uh, and that because to me, basketball doesn't really start till Christmas and then <laughs> is when the season really starts and then we got March madness. So yeah. So just come on and it's just me. Usually I haven't had any guests yet. So working up to that, still working up to that after two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we, uh, we appreciated you being our guests and, uh, we're glad to have you on anytime. So, uh, Chad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, man. Appreciate you. Take care. Thanks a lot, Chad. All right. We have only two uh, folks left to honor. And uh, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and read the the first uh, first name of the first honoree? Yeah. And full disclosure, these are the only two that we had to add to the list uh, that passed away in December after we came up with the initial list. So uh, Frank Wycheck passed away. Frank Wycheck, born in 1971, passed away on December 9th. Wycheck was a three-time Pro Bowler for the Tennessee Titans. He is perhaps best known for his role in the Music City Miracle during the 1999 NFL playoffs against the Buffalo Bills. That same year, Wycheck started a tight end for the Titans against the St. Louis Rams in the Super Bowl in 1999. I remember him as being sort of an elite tight end in the league for a couple of years. It didn't necessarily last very long. He was only a three-time pro bowler. His, his highest receiving yards in a season was uh, 788 uh, in 1988. 
but I don't know, maybe maybe your recollection is different, but I just remember him being one of the, the one of the really good tight ends in the NFL for those few years. Yeah, I, he was kind of I know he was on Washington in 93 and 94 and I guess technically the Oilers for a few years, but he's one of the first guys really along with McNair and I guess Eddie George, who I associate with the Tennessee Titans, you know, like the first year or maybe the second year they were the Titans was the year they went to the Super Bowl and they were kind of very 90s with the you know, the logo and the dark blue and the light blue. And, you know, that there that run really only last like that was obviously the only Super Bowl they got to. And and um, but he was a, a key player for that. And I just kind of see him in the big um, the big shoulder pads and sort of the prototypical the white tight end of that era, like big guy who could catch passes and, and was a good blocker and didn't really have blazing speed, but was just a really like what they call hard nosed player. Yeah. And that was their first year as the Titans. That was their first year mm -hmm. in Nashville. They'd played on the other side of the state in Memphis in 97 and 98 as the Tennessee Oilers. I've always wondered whether they planned to rebrand once they settled in Nashville or whether they just sort of decided to rebrand, mm -hmm. you know, once once the move was finalized, because it, does, it really doesn't make any sense to be the Tennessee Oilers for for just a couple of years. Um, and you know, who knows, you might remember that team differently if they hadn't come up a yard short in that Super Bowl in the 99 season. But, you know, the the it's the Music City Miracle is one of the it's a weird plague because I remember watching it specifically. And for me, it's one of the earliest sort of like classic plays that I remember watching. It was a, I think I would have been in eighth grade and it was, I think it was a, I think that was one of the Saturday games. It was on ABC and may that have even been new year's day or new year's Eve. No, it was the week after I'm sorry, but I remember watching that game and certainly from the other end, there's a, a lot to talk about. If, if we ever wanted to do a thing on the, the Wade Phillips decision to bench his quarterback who got him to that. Oh point. yeah. But bench this, Flutie. Oh, was it uh, mm. Doug? Con no, not Doug Collins. No, Doug Collins was, was far past his prime as a best as a football quarterback at that point. What um, was the guy's name though? Rob Johnson, Rob Johnson. Oh, no, I know. I don't know. Not, why I thought it was, no, it's not Rob Johnson either. It was Rob Johnson. I was right. Was? Um, yes. Oh, okay. I'm looking at it. But so I remember watching the play late and the Titans, you know, you see a cool play like that. And even then you're sort of, even me at 12, 13 years old is sort of expecting there to be a flag because cool things like movie type things don't happen in real like games, you know what I mean? And yeah, when they threw it backwards to Wycheck, or no, was, was, did Wycheck throw it? He threw it Wycheck, to Kevin Dyson. I'm sorry, Wycheck throws it to Dyson, and Dyson runs up the sideline for the touchdown. Subsequently, obviously, the Titans go all the way to the Super Bowl. You know, there's been all kinds of replays that show maybe it was slightly forward, but you know, to get off of that kind of a throw or across the field like that in a situation like that, I don't care how many times you practice it is just, you know, he's got a place in one of the the all time plays in football history. 
and apparently I'm just reading now, and this is on re- Wikipedia, but I'm I'm going to trust it. Um, that they had actually known of his passing acumen. They discovered him playing catch with uh, Bruce Matthews, who was a Hall of Fame offensive lineman for the Oilers, and then the Titans. And they actually designed uh, an option pass, and in in '99 against the Falcons, Wycheck as a tight end throws a 61 yard touchdown pass. You do not see a lot of tight ends throwing touchdown passes at any in any era of professional football <laughs> as the tight end throwing a touchdown pass. And so then after he was successful with that, they specifically designed this play that they called the home run throwback uh, up to be sort of their um, their miracle, uh, you know, their 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 Hail Mary kickoff return type play. And so they um they design it, they put Wycheck in to run it, and they, you know, they they executed successfully. And of course, you know, Bills fans will always uh, always claim that it was an illegal pass. But uh at the time there was uh I guess was there there, there was replay at those at that point. I think maybe, that might have been the first or second year it was back in place. Because okay. they did look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he was a guy, you know, he kind of remained in the area. Unfortunately, probably his his premature death was in some ways related to CTE, which is always unfortunate when you see that happen uh, to somebody who played 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 any football, professional football or any for that matter. But until his sort of his health started to fade, he was a member of the community, was on the radio, served as an analyst for Titans games. So not an all time great, but a three time pro bowler made all pro, uh, you know, was on some good teams and uh, participated probably in the most memorable, memorable moment in, in franchise history. And one of the most memorable moments in football uh, in the 20th century, 21st century. So, uh, and if you're, and was a guy who stayed with the organization, he did uh, studio shows and, and color commentary on the, Mm. on the games all the way from 2005 up until the 2017 season. And uh, he stepped down due to lingering, uh, head issues from uh, his time playing football, both professionally and and you know before that. All right. Well, I think we have just one more to go. Do you want to read off the the bio of the last person? Sure. George McGinnis, born in 1950, died on December 14th. McGinnis started his professional career with the Indianapolis Pacers of the ABA, where he won the MVP in 1975 and led the Pacers to two ABA championships. He later moved on to the Philadelphia 76ers and helped lead the team to the NBA Finals in 1977. McGinnis was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2017. So I know very little about this this dynasty Pacers team that won three ABA titles in the, the 1970s. The the four teams that came over from the ABA are the Nets, the Nuggets, the Spurs, and the Pacers. And obviously, the Spurs have had a lot of glory years since then. The other three teams, in a lot of ways, the, the Nuggets just won a championship last year. The other th- the other three, including the Nuggets, have sort of, in a lot of ways, those teams their glory years was during the ABA years. And I'm not really an expert on this, but I kind of want to learn more about this great, these great Pacer teams that won, won the three ABA championships in the 1970s, you know, led by guys like Bob, Bob Nedelicki, uh, and 
Roger Brown, who's uh, who's in the Hall of Fame, and I think there's there's one other big uh, one other big high uh, high uh, high profile name that I'm missing. Freddie Lewis is the other. Oh, Freddie Lewis, who's uh, was a three time All Star, three time. He's on member of the ABA All Time Team. Mel Daniels, who's a Hall of Famer and was uh, a, a seven time. ABA All-Star and McGinnis is really the one guy from those Pacers teams who went on to have an All-Star NBA career as well. Most of those other guys, they either never played in the NBA or they played a year or two, you know, cup of coffee type of thing, but their glory years were all in the ABA. McGinnis, he actually leaves the ABA a year before it, um, year before it it uh it folds or it merges with the NBA he leaves immediately after winning the ABA title and the the MVP award with I'm um, actually they didn't they don't win the title in in 75 they actually lose to the, the Kentucky Colonels but anyway he leaves um ex- the year after playing in the finals and winning an ABA MVP actually sharing one with Julius Irving tries to go to the Knicks but Philly owns his draft rights. So he has to go to Philly plays one year with Philly on a team. That's sort of not so great. They're 46 and 36. And then the following year, Dr. J comes also from the ABA to the Sixers. And that team ends up uh, going on all the way to the NBA finals and losing to Portland. So McGinnis is probably one of those few guys who does it in both the ABA and the NBA Julius Irving is another one, you know, there's, there's a few others, but one of the few and the only one from that Pacer team that does it at a high level in both leagues. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, I think you mentioned it before talking about you basically with the ABA and I'm obviously people who go out of their way to study about it. No more than this, but it's like you hear about Dr. J you hear about the merger and then you hear about sort of the colorful stories or the, you know, the stories about different, sort of offbeat kind of things. You don't hear about this Pacer team that, you know, cause that was just a good team that won a bunch of championships and were the, you know, the ABA took the teams that were viable. It wasn't that they took the teams that were in the best markets or anything like that. So this was long before there was a, an Indiana, Indianapolis Colts. They basically invented Indiana or Indianapolis as a pro sports town, which it still is. It's only a, a two sport town, but um, you know, Indiana, you think Indiana basketball, college basketball, these Pacer teams sort of established a, a franchise that remains viable to this day. And McGinnis is one of, I think we said, what, there's four Pacers who have their numbers retired. I think I looked and saw that he's one of them. Reggie Miller, obviously, um, I can look this back up in a second here, but uh, I believe there was only there's only four total guys who they've ever had their numbers retired, and he's mm-hmm. he's one. Yeah, Roger guess- Brown, Reggie Miller, and Mel Daniels, and, yeah, and George yeah. McGinnis, and that that those last three, the guys who you know everybody Miller are the front line of those championship mm-hmm. teams for the Pacers, Daniel McGinnis and Brown. So that is those definitely are they they're coached by Slick Leonard. Who uh, we we he passed away a couple years ago, Slick Leonard, and we talked about him on a previous episode of um, 
previous episode of uh, Hello Old Sports uh, in memoriam special. I should correct myself. McGinnis actually only wins two ABA titles. He's not there yet for the first one uh, that they win. Um, or is he not there for the last one? That's a, let me check that out one second here. Um, yeah, he's there seventy-one to seventy-five. So whatever yeah, that so, is. So they being. lose the finals and okay, so they don't know. So he's he's there. Okay, they win one before he gets there, and then he's there for two, and then he he does leave a year early, but they don't win the title in the last year of the last year of the ABA, and then he goes to um, he goes to uh, he goes to Philly, and he teams with Doctor J, and that's sort of a. Uh, that 77 team is is shocked in the 77 finals against the the Portland Trailblazers everybody thinks that the everybody thinks that the Sixers that year are going to blow the Blazers out of the water cuz that's the team of McGinnis and Dr. J, uh, World Be Free. Daryl Dawkins is on that team. It's sort of one of the greatest collections of individual talent in the history of professional basketball. But the the Blazers upset them in in six games. Walton wins MVP. It's seen as sort of a triumph of team basketball versus individual basketball. Um, and in game six, with the Sixers down three to two in the they they win the first two, then they lose the next three. They're down three to two in game going into game six. They're down two points in the last position with um uh with 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 the ball. And uh the head coach, Gene Shu, calls a play for McGinnis, even though uh Dr. J has already scored 40, and Irving is kind of a little bit uh puzzled by that. That you know McGinnis does not does not uh does not make the basket. The Sixers lose the game, they lose the series, and then uh, McGinnis uh, only spends, I think, another year or two in Philly before uh, going to the the NBA version of the Pacers to finish out his career. But he was on the Nuggets in between. Oh, okay, goes to another ABA team. All mm. right, so yeah, he doesn't last long in Philly after that that seventy seven season. He's only there one more year. Yeah, and then he spends a couple of years with the Nuggets, and then finishes up with a couple of years in the uh, back with the Pacers. Although in the uh, NBA at this point, after uh, after the series, um, this is what World Be Free says. Um, after they lose, they said for a brief moment the fans seemed to put the blame on Dr. J, but they were most angry with McGinnis. They booed this poor guy unmercifully. They didn't put anywhere near the kind of hate on Doc that they put on George, and it was real bad. They never forgave George for that loss to Portland, but people have to realize that George had never come up against two players like Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas before. Those were two very big, very talented, very physical players. Up until that Portland series, George was smoking everyone, but against those two guys, his game was just off. So has a bad finals, and the fans in Philly never really never really forgive him for that. And this went well. Uh, we had you know, a record number of guests who you heard throughout the last few episodes. So we want to thank, uh, thank all of them. I, I don't have the list in front of me of everybody who joined us. So I don't want to, don't want to, um, don't want to start going through it and, uh, and, and accidentally miss somebody, but, uh, check the show notes and you'll see everybody that joined us. And, uh, I thought it was a, a good in memoriam, a good way to end, uh, 2023 and, uh, an, another good year for hello old sports. Yeah. Um, this has sort of become the, the capstone of the year that we usually put out in January and, 
you know, uh, can't nobody, as we're recording this for the last time on January 9th, I don't think there's been any notable uh, passing away since the beginning of the year. But, you know, just a fact of life that it won't be long before the uh, the list for 2024 uh, starts to populate. And at the end of the year, we'll have uh, have some more people to reflect on their lives with uh, with some guests. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us for another fun year. And uh, we will be back to regular programming, as they say, uh, over the next couple of weeks. But until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to Sports historynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.